Welcome to Collis Krill's On The Sofa podcast. Today we're going to be speaking about reporting suspicion in the bailiwick of Guernsey. Um, my name is Sandra Lawrence and I head up Collis Krill Compliance Limited, which is a GRC consultancy business based in Guernsey. I have just shy of 24 years experience working in financial services and during that time I have held and in fact still hold supervised roles, including that of the MLRO. And I'm joined today by my colleague Nin Ritchie, who is of counsel at Collis Krill. Nin brings with her extensive experience as a well-established dispute resolution practitioner, and she leads the cross-departmental risk and regulatory team at Collis Krill. Nin assists financial services businesses in dealing with consent matters with the FIU, including advising on no consent situations. And so she brings a vast amount of experience with her today. So let's launch in. Nin, would you be able to just remind us of some of the um, legal obligations surrounding reporting suspicion, please? Absolutely, Sandra. My pleasure. The legal framework in in the bailiwick is comprehensive uh, around reporting suspicion. The MLRO is concerned with two different, but in practice, legal concepts. Um, First, there's the obligation to report money laundering, and this is dealt with under under the disclosure law, the 2007 law. And secondly, there is the prohibition of committing the core money laundering offences. And these, as all MLROs will be well aware of, are set out in sections 3840 of the Proceeds of Crime Law. So the 1999 law, which, as we're well aware, has been amended and consolidated many times. So the question of whether or not the MLRO needs to make a disclosure breaks down to to two points, really. So does the MLRO know or are they suspicious that anyone has engaged in money laundering? And this is a question sort of entirely for the MLRO's consideration. And if not, does the MLRO nevertheless know facts which would make a reasonable person suspicious of money laundering. So a trickier question really. Um, And this is a question for the MLRO based on the known facts that it's faced with. Now of those two um, factors really, I think this is probably the area where an MLRO may want to reach out for legal support. As we all know, suspicion is a very low threshold and I don't need to start boring people with the case law around that. So suspicion doesn't have to be reasonably based uh, or based on any particular facts. And this is particularly so under the disclosure law where essentially an objective test um, of suspicion applies. So when you take those two tests, the connection between the two obligations is that in practice, if you're going to make a disclosure under the disclosure law in relation to a particular set of facts, in most cases, you are in all likelihood admitting that mental element of suspicion uh, of the relevant offence under the proceeds of crime law. The consent is available under the proceeds of crime law and all MLROs will be familiar with that process. There's no deemed consent provision in Guernsey. So quite different, Sandra, to how things operate in the UK. Um, And the FIS are free to withhold consent without taking formal steps to restrain property. Um, So really, 
you know, quite an interesting point there. Now, the, the FIS usually are pretty prompt to respond. And certainly I think it's in the handbook. It sets out that they will respond within 14 days. Um, but there is no mandatory time frame. Um, and then I suppose the last point to make uh, when we're talking about those legal obligations and all MLROs will be very familiar with this. You should be considering each person involved or connected with an internal SAR when it comes to you, uh, when determining whether or not to externalize the SAR in respect of such persons. So Sandra, with all that sort of high level information in mind and the, the obligations of, of the, the MLRO and the nominated officer, it may well be worth you just sort of talking us through the GFSC thematic on reporting suspicion and those key areas that really stood out to you, I'd, I'd love to hear. The thematic review contains some really important insight into the GFSC's expectations, which I think is, is important as, as sometimes it's, um, it, it's important to look at both the FIU and the GFSC expectations. So the key points that really stuck out to me, um, the report actually consisted of two parts. So the first part being board oversight of the MLRO um, and MLRO capabilities and capacity. And the second part was the effectiveness of the SAR policies, procedures and controls. So firstly, looking at part one, the board oversight and MLRO capabilities and capacity, um, the review identified that the majority of businesses that took part had appointed an MLRO, um, which was suitably senior, qualified and independent. And mm. I think that comes as no surprise in Guernsey, we're yeah. a mature regulatory framework and, and our MLRO, MLROs are, are good people and they know what they're doing. I agree. What the report did highlight, which I think was interesting, is that many firms, in terms of the relationship between the role of the MLRO and that of the board, and the thematic focused on the fact that while boards must ensure that MLROs are, of course, afforded autonomy when deciding whether or not to make that external SAR, um, that it does not negate the board's responsibility in making sure that the overarching framework is in place to support the MLRO function. Mm. Um, it goes on to say that it remains the responsibility of the board to ensure that there are appropriate and effective policies and procedures in place, detailing how the MLRO and the nominated officer will fulfil their role. So it's simply not enough for the policies and procedures to deal with how internal SARS should be handled, reported, recorded and managed. The policies and procedures should really extend to what the MLRO or the nominated officer must do on receipt of an internal SAR. So that extends to maintaining the records on both internal and external SARS, handling any formal information requests that may come in from the FIU, making consent requests, the management of blocked accounts, and where a firm is part of a group, sharing that information on SARS and, and, and where that is permissible. Um, so in effect, boards or, or any delegated subcommittees must ensure that their policies and procedures provide the complete framework. Um, I think it's probably helpful to touch on the comment in the thematic regarding tipping off. Um, it, it sort of touched on it. It is quite a sensitive subject. Um, and it did make reference to quite an outdated now um, procurers guide, HM Procurers Guidance, which was published in October 2011. But it, it's still out there and it still stands. And it stated that for the avoidance of doubt, it confirmed that no prosecutions will be brought against persons who disclose the fact that a SAR has been 
all will be made if the disclosure is made by one member of an organisation to another for the purposes of discharging AML CFT responsibilities and functions. Now, this guidance goes on to say that this will also be the case in respect of a disclosure made to linked organisations, so perhaps head offices or other branches of the same institution. So again, providing that it is made to discharge AML CFT responsibilities and functions. So that's the key point really around that, so yes. that you may disclose it, but for that very particular purpose. Exactly, exactly. And that's where your documentation comes in. So sort of touching on this point regarding MLRO policies and procedures, if you are discharging information along those lines, make sure that you're very clear and you've documented why it is in order to discharge the responsibilities and functions. So what is your view? It, should these report, reports be quality over quantity? It's a really good question, Lynn, and I do think in, in my extensive time in, in holding these roles, it has changed over time. Um, I think the quality has to be in the snapshot that's going to the board. So um, the, the information that's given, boards, as we well know, are presented with an awful lot of information um, at quarterly board meetings and, and otherwise, and, and board packs can run to hundreds of pages. So I think the key thing for the MLRO to to do is really highlight to the board what are the key trends and themes that have come out of that that particular reporting period so are there an awful lot of SARS that are coming in which are in relation to I don't know let's say tax evasion for example well then that gives the board the ability to understand okay what does that tell us about our business our client base maybe our strategy and business plan um, is there maybe some more staff training that needs to be provided and those sorts of really really key trends that of course they they if you give them all of that detail, they'll they'll lose the, you know, they won't be able to see the wood for the trees, but just being able to give them that really, really high quality snapshot, I think is crucial. It, it helps the board discharge their fiduciary duty. Um, being able to say to the board, this is what's coming, this is what I've done with it, this is what it means to the firm. Again, just allowing them to sort of cut through, cut through all of the sort of busy detail and, and identify, okay, what, what did this mean to our firm and what have we done about it? So the quality detail up front in, in a summary and of certainly of all the information that you are required to report, really try and pinpoint um, those that are will have most impact yes. to the firm. And then, but do you include all of the mandatory information behind that so that it's there and it can be seen and it can be read exactly. and processed? Yeah, so you're, you're allowing the board to be able to demonstrate that all sort of regulatory obligations have been discharged, but, but probably more importantly in that snapshot is the ability for the board to be able to step back and understand, you know, it's all about risk, it's all about your risk framework and your risk appetite and your, your, your risk assessment. So what is this telling the firm? Um, is, the, is the risk appetite correct? Does that need to be altered or whatever the case may be? That makes perfect sense to me. Were you going to touch on the effectiveness of SARS and, and policies, procedures and controls? Like yeah, that. I was. So I was just going to mention in, in the thematic, um, the review commented um, on the action taken by firms since the FIU first issued their guidance to improve suspicious activity reports in October 2019. We know that that has since been, been updated, um, which we will touch on later. Um, but what it did say is that um, it highlighted in the event that an external SAR contains a consent request, that in order to assist the FIU to properly assess if consent is required, that the MLRO should be identifying the act that it suspects may be an offence under the proceeds of crime law and for which it, it is seeking consent. So again, we will talk about that a little bit later on, but I think it's um, important to highlight that that was also picked out in the thematic mm. um, as an important piece. 
So I think once an MLRO has sort of reviewed an internal SAR and, and made a determination on whether or not that needs to be externalised, I think the next thing that would be really helpful, and again, Lynn, I know you've got lots of experience on this in terms of the work that you do with your clients, I think it would be helpful to run through what information should be included on an external disclosure, um, which could also help any MLROs listening um, in terms of the content of what should be in these procedures that, that the GFSC are, are urging firms to, to put in place. So I wonder if you could just run through some of your thoughts, Lynn. Very nice segue, Sandra, into uh, the FIU's guidance note uh, that it issued in December 2021 20, on improving SARS. And then it's got its further guidance on the consent regime that it published earlier this year. So, so the purpose of issuing the guidance note on improving SARS was essentially to um, set out the type of information that um, is required to enable the FIU to fully understand the relationship held and the nature of the suspicion pertaining uh, to it to allow the FIU itself really to make an informed decision as to how to develop that information. So in terms of when you're explaining your suspicion, you will know all about your clients. Um, anything that the FIU gets, it will be cold on. So it will be reading it afresh uh, and, and with a fresh pair of eyes. So it needs to form a view of, you know, is the information it has received, it itself needs to do something with, uh, i.e. sort of prepare it for wider dissemination amongst overseas competent authorities and others. And the guidance set out some really great pointers of what should be included. Um, and at a very high level, in my view, really setting out the reasons for a suspicion is critical. The guidance suggests providing a chronological account of the relationship and the sequence of events or all the information that's become available, however that has been come into your hands that has led to the suspicion or knowledge so really don't say don't just say the events uh, or information that have come to your to your attention really do take that next step to say why it has caused you to be suspicious um, and so I, th I thought it might be helpful to just explain um, if I was drafting a SAR, which, which I do, um, I, I do help my clients really, particularly where scenarios are fairly complex, uh, I do assist in structuring a SAR, uh, drafting it up. So how would I structure it and what would I include? And I think if it was accompanying a consent request, it would look something like this. First and foremostly, I would set out, and before I launch into it, actually, Sandra, I should say, you know, there is a form on Fenris, so it, it, it always makes sense. And, you know, you absolutely should be completing the form in its entirety for the FIU. They have designed the form in such a way to capture all the information they want, but really to help the FIU in its understanding. Um, I, I would set out the parties to the SAR. And then I would move on to the information known on those parties. So when the relationship commenced with your firm, the CDD that was undertaken at that time, including the source of wealth and the source of funds. So what you know about that, you may know a lot, depending on the type of client it is. You may not know very much at all. The risk rating of that relationship, the particular factors that determine the risk rating of the relationship, and whether there's been any trigger events, so circumstances that have led to the assessment 
changing over time of the client uh, and what led the institution to, to make those changes and if they did what they were. So what were those trigger events and what changed as a result of your reviews at those trigger events is probably the simpler way to say it. The CMP that the relationship is subject to uh, and the purpose of the relationship and the expected activity. So it's the client working within uh, the normal framework that you would expect for them or have they actually gone outside of it? Um, and then I'd go out and set out the sequence of events that led to the suspicion being formed or the knowledge uh, and then the disclosure being made. And that's really, I think that's the step that the FIU refer to as the sort of series of chronological events. Mm-hmm. I would then be explicit in the, in, the explicit, in the suspected or known criminality. So what do you think uh, has happened? Or what do you know has happened? And how did that information come into the hands of the institution? So do you know or suspect because information has come to you confidentially via the group? Or has it come to you through open source information? Or did the client simply tell you him or herself? Mm. So, so that is the sort of what I would call the meat of the SAR. That's what I put in beyond the standard information required in the form uh, that you would submit on FEMIS. And then in terms of requesting consent, as you alluded to when you were talking about the guidance, the guidance that the FIU issued earlier this year really drilled down to the importance of establishing the act that the institution is seeking consent to do. So is that making a payment? or a distribution? Is it making an investment on behalf of the client or is it simply taking its own fees? And that probably takes us on nicely again, Sandra, to talk about, um, so as an MLRO, you're very focused, I'm sure, on drafting up your disclosures, but sat behind that is your record keeping. And I know you feel quite passionately about how that should be done and sort of this, the framework that MLRO should be supported by in that respect. So, you know, g- give me your thoughts. <laughs> yeah, well, it, it's like, you know, the, the good old compliance adage of if it hasn't been written down, it hasn't been done. So I think it would be fair to say that applies to everything. But in particular, MLRO record keeping, it, it really is critical. Um, and it's your way of demonstrating the action that you've taken and any decisions that you've made throughout the life cycle of the the SAR. So the the GFSC AML handbook does set out quite clearly the sort of minimum information that should be be recorded. Um, And that includes the the obvious things, the internal disclosure, excuse me, and any supporting documents, the records of any action that has been taken in terms of of the reporting requirements, Um, crucially the evidence of the inquiries made. So you you may find that um, you, you may get a SAR through and, and actually you don't have to make many investigations and it's all very clear, but um, it's much more likely that you'll have to undertake investigations yourself. Um, as MLRO, it's unlikely that you'll be involved in the day-to-day running of a client relationship. So you'll probably have to sort of seek out more information from whoever is the relationship manager. Um, so, so make sure that you record the evidence of those discussions that you have. Um, if you have sort of considered any additional information or material, um, but you haven't made an external disclosure to the FIU, then it's really, really, really important that you make a record of what that material was 
and um, why you made the decision not to externalize. Mm. So what was it that, that made you decide that, that actually this didn't have, it didn't sort of meet the suspicion test effectively and that you didn't want to externalize? So that demonstrability of proper consideration. Exactly. And I think, you know, in, in that in that situation where you are not externalizing, you know, it's it's almost more important because you're having to detect distinguish what it is what 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 have you found what information have you come across which has allayed any suspicion or, or knowledge that, that was included in the internal cell I think that's right and it goes back to not just setting out the facts it goes back to giving the reasons yes. to support your decision making so you know whether or not suspicion arises will be uh, due to a set of facts that have mm. presented themselves but the MLRO's reasons can't be understated for any decision it makes no, exactly. And that, that moves us on to where if you have made an external disclosure, then the, the same thing, you know, make sure that you've kept all, all decisions and copies of any relevant information passed on to the FIU. Um, and this is the most important thing. I know Lynn, this is something you, you speak about regularly, but this is why it's so important for MLROs to submit good quality SARS and keep this crucial information because it's it's for you to be in the best possible position should should it ever be challenged. Um, the all of this information hopefully it goes without saying should be confidential and restricted to just those that should have access to it and of course nothing should be contained on the client files also of course mlros must maintain a register and this records internal and external disclosures and um, this is probably quite a live document as an mlro you will probably update it intermittently from the point you receive a SAR to probably the point the relationships ended if, if it goes that way um, the rules do specify exactly what should, should go in there. So I'll just quickly rattle through those. Um, the date that the internal disclosure was received by the MLRO, the name of the person that submitted the internal disclosure, or that, that may be a couple of people in some instances, the date of the disclosure to the FIU, if applicable, the name of the person who submitted the disclosure to the FIU, so that's likely to be the MLRO mm. or the nominated officer, the value of the transaction or any activity subject to the disclosure, where that's applicable, any reference by which supporting evidence is identifiable. So MLROs will likely allocate a, a specific reference number to each SAR that they receive, which will be used for internal correspondence. So that wouldn't in any way sort of look like the client's account number or client's reference number. And the date of any updates or additional information that was submitted to the FIU. So again, it goes, goes back to the point you made, Nin, about if new information comes to light, trigger events or whatever, then, then make sure, again, you are undertaking that assessment and you are documenting what, what it is that's either determined that, yes, you want to pass the information on, or, or in some cases, maybe that actually this new information has come to light and I'm no longer suspicious that it, it, it explains whatever activity it was that, that had, been, um, had been highlighted previously. And then of that information that you've collected, and it's a real wealth of information, uh, what of that are you then obligated to pass up to the sort of management in terms of the sort of manage, management information pack? Yeah, so again, the handbook is quite clear that there is a minimum amount of information, but I think sort of touching on the point that was mentioned earlier in terms of the relationship between the MLRO and the board, um, this minimum information should at least enable the board to take that high level helicopter view of, you know, what is the, the AML landscape of the business and, and what, if any, trends have been highlighted. So the sort of the minimum information that should be going up to the board is the number of internal disclosures received the number of external disclosures reported, 
an indication of the length of time taken by the MLRO in deciding whether or not to externalise an internal disclosure. Um, and I think that's quite important because it could it could completely reasonably take a few days to ask questions and look through files and whatever. And I think it's really important that the MLRO has the opportunity to explain what that delay was and to sort of validate, well, well this is why I, you know, I had to wait to speak to somebody or it was a huge file and it took me, you know, the best part of a morning to look through it or, or whatever it might be. Um, and of course, the nature of the disclosures. So again, just touching back on that, that trends point, if, of all the SARS, you know, 80% of them were in relation to tax evasion, for example. Um, that's a really important piece of management information for the board to be able to understand because, you know, it, it may be saying other things about the business, the strategy, the client base, um, staff knowledge. Is there a training gap? Is there a gap in take on policies and procedures in, in terms of the questions being asked around tax domicile or, or whatever? So, so that's sort of key management information. Um, again, sort of your point about quality versus quantity in I think you know keep it high level but of course there is always the opportunity at the board meeting for the MLRA to explain or to answer any questions um, you know you, you'll want to keep the report quite confidential in terms of client names. That, that's great and in terms of keeping it confidential in, client, in terms of client names do you have a tip on on how you do that Sandra? So I would <laughs> any company secretary that's ever minuted meetings that I'm in will know I'll sort of raise my hand and say you know these client names aren't for the for the minutes um, using allocating this internal style reference is crucial, really, because you, you, you know that anything that's referred to in a report or a set of minutes or whatever, um, you know, you can track it back. You know, you'll be able to find it on the confidential files. But yeah, just just make sure that um, anyone in the room understands the sensitive nature of, of discussing sort of client names or at least minuting client names. Of, of course, your board will be interested in well, who is the client, um, but just be really, really careful. So flag it at the meeting when you come to review the, the minutes after they're circulated again just sort of keep that in mind and make sure there's nothing identifiable um, just to avoid any you know if you received a data protection subject access request for example just any accidental tipping off that might take place by information being passed on to somebody who, who shouldn't have it or, or indeed tipping somebody off that they're under investigation. Well I love your tips Sandra you're always a real font of of helpful information to me and that probably brings us to a really uh, good stopping point in terms of what we've covered um, around reporting suspicion what what is your sort of key take-home point for today Sandra in a nutshell so I, I really think it's about keeping and maintaining your own MLRO policies and procedures um, and really just detailing any action that you take from the moment you receive that ISAR until, as I say, whether the relationship's um, terminated or, or whatever the case may be. Yeah, really important that um, draft your SARs well. You never know where they may end up. And certainly if you're requesting consent, which may not go with every SAR, but in most circumstances in a relationship, you will find yourself requesting consent at some point, um, do remember to define the act uh, within the consent request 